Amen. Oh, it's an interesting one. Technology throws you for a loop, right? <laughs> just the way it is sometimes. In just a few minutes, we'll be looking at a few passages of Scripture. So um, what, what I'd like you to do is, is maybe uh, find the, the passage and, and mark it with your finger or something because, you know, some of you might not be lucky enough to have a Bible with two Footmarks like me, but I got I got two footmarks. But anyway, uh, uh, so we're going to start in Matthew 16, 18 here in just a few minutes. And so if you want to find that and, and put your finger there or place your bookmark there or what, whatever you want to do there, and then we will uh, look at Ephesians chapter five verse twenty five and and then back to Ephesians chapter three verse eight, and we'll look at those in in just a few minutes. Uh, they're all in the Bible app and on our website as well. Um, if you if you have the, the Bible app and are using that or on our website, um, those passages are all, all on there for you. I don't know if you know this or not, but Southern Baptists used to give out attendance pins. And so when you when you came to Sunday school, if you had perfect Sunday school attendance, then you would get yourself a little pin that you could proudly display uh, for everyone that you did not miss Sunday school one single time. And uh, way back in the day, it used to be that if you were a Christian, you made sure that you were in church every single Sunday, no matter what. But it seems like nowadays, uh, going to church is not as important as it used to be. But I guess maybe the church in general has lost its luster. In fact, today many Christians think that they're very committed to church if they attend church two or three Sundays a month, they would classify themselves as very committed. Still, other Christians seem to want nothing to do with the church, and if asked, they would perhaps say that the church is just too boring, or the church just is not relevant. If they go to church, it messes with their weekend off, and they can get what they want online anyway. Others may have been wounded in one form or another, by the church, and so they do not go to church because they're just avoiding the pain of deeper wounds in their life. Now, here's the question that many people ask Who needs the church? Who needs the church? For other people, the church is, is just nice to have around, but it's not essential. The church is not at the center of their life. It is kind of like they can live with or without the church. It's, it's just there. Happiness and self-fulfillment is what's most important to them. So if the church can help them be happier or feel more fulfilled, then they will attend the church. However, there is a drawback because if the church fails to deliver what they want in the category of happiness and self-fulfillment, then they will either shop around for a new church or they will join those who have dropped out of church altogether. Now, we've heard a lot in, in the past several months about essential workers, what is essential, what's not essential uh, since uh, starting this pandemic, especially. In fact, we put out there on our church sign, thank you all essential workers. But what does that word mean? What does it mean that something is essential? If we are using it to describe something, it means that it is absolutely necessary or extremely important. 
And so in the case for essential workers, we were saying that these workers were absolutely necessary to, to, uh, for us to function as a society, and they were extremely important. And I got to thinking this week as I was preparing this message, I wonder how many people feel that the church is essential. How many Christians feel that the church is absolutely necessary and extremely important? Or as someone once put it, if your church were removed from your town, would anyone really care? Or better yet, would anyone even notice if your church was removed? You see, I'm convinced that for many Christians, the church is not essential. It's just a piece of their everyday life. It's just something they do, like everything else they do. But this flies directly in the face of God's word. Because we're told in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, Christ in his church is to be at the center of everything that we do in our life. The church is supposed to be essential to the point that we feel like we couldn't live if we're not part of the church. Everything in our life should be governed by what is at the center of our life. And in this message today, I want to tell you why it is that we need the church. And I'm gonna do this by arguing that Christ in his body, which is the church, has to be essential. Christ in his church is to be at the center of our life. It is to be the core by which everything else in our life is actually governed. Now, let me also be clear. I know that this message that I'm about to proclaim, it's not a popular message, but I believe it is indeed a biblical message. And let me also be clear. My goal in this message is not to guilt trip anyone uh, so if you're here or you listen online or you listen at a, a later time, my goal is not to guilt trip anyone to think, oh man, he's really fired up because people aren't going to church. That's not my goal. If at the end of this message you feel guilty, then that's not for me. Um, that would be from the Holy Spirit. Let me share with you how John Stott puts it. If the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, it must surely also be central to our lives. How can we take light, lightly what God takes so seriously? How dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? There are three reasons why I believe the church is essential and why we need the church. Before we get to them, let's read from God's word. And so I would uh, ask uh, that if you are willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read those three passages of scripture I stated earlier, Matthew, beginning with Matthew 16, 18, from the English Standard Version, all three of these will be Matthew 16, 18. We used it last week. We're using it again this week. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Then flip over to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 25, where we read, 
uh, passage that should be familiar to most of us. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then back to Ephesians 3, 8, where we read, To me, though I am very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let's pray. Father, take your word this morning. Penetrate our hearts and our lives. Lord, teach us this morning the church is to be essential. Lord, teach us that it has to be central in our lives, the focus of, of the things that we do. Lord, forgive us when we've pushed it to the circumference, what is supposed to be the center. Speak truth to us this morning. And Lord, I humbly ask that you'd use me to do it. Speak for your saints are listening. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So here are the three reasons that the church is essential. First, the church is essential because Christ promised to build it. Second, the church is essential because Christ loves the church and he gave himself for it. And thirdly, the church is essential because Christ reveals his glory through it. Now, let me be honest with you. The first two truths have profoundly impacted my life and my ministry. And in fact, I would say that they've kept me in ministry. To be honest, I've had more than one time where I've wanted to give up and quit ministry altogether. I've battled deep discouragement in my life in ways I'm certain that, that many people will never know. And when I do, I always return to these truths. Mark Clifton, who is a replant and revitalization strategist for the North American Mission Board, says this, if Christ promised to build his church, then he will build it. If Christ promised to build his church, then he will build it. And I've just never been able to shake that thought. I always come back to it, that Christ will build his church. He promised to build it and he will build it. And I just want to be a part of helping him build it. Then I'm faced with if Christ loved the church enough to die for the church, and I proclaim to love Christ as a follower of Christ, what does that mean? Then that means that I better love the church. Despite all of her faults and her shortcomings and, and everything else, that, that I am required as a follower of Christ to love Christ's church. And so, first I want us to notice this morning is the church is essential because Christ promised to build it. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus had asked the disciples of this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied to him, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, and some say that you are Elijah and Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asked the most critical question that everyone at some point in their life must answer in verse 15 when he says, but who do you say that I am? You see, our eternal destiny hinges on getting the answer to that very question right. Peter gives his well-known answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And now Jesus' reply to Peter is where I want to focus the first part of this message. And Jesus 
answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In that statement, Jesus reveals at least four reasons why the church is essential, and I want to look at them with you this morning. First, the church belongs to Christ. The church belongs to Christ. Did you notice all the pronouns? All through that, I tell you, I will build my church. I will give you. It's made abundantly clear that the church belongs to Jesus. Now, I know that we like to say that it's, it's our church or, or my church. I do that all the time when I'm talking to people about this church. I'll, I'll say, well, my church is First Baptist Church in Washington. I'll say my church. It's just what we say. And I know it's not, I know this church really isn't my church. No pastor or person can rightfully claim that the church is their church. It is not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church because Christ bought and paid for it with his own blood. The church belongs exclusively to Jesus. It does not matter how influential someone is or how much money they give to the church or how long uh, their ancestors have been members of the church. None of that really matters. It doesn't matter whether their great granddaddy was a founder of the church and, and that's all meaningless. There was no one on the face of this earth that can make a rightful claim and say, this church is my church. No, it's not. That just has a way of destroying our pride, doesn't it? When we think, well, that's my church. No, not really. Why does that destroy our pride? Well, to be honest, we'd like to think, well, if I weren't here, that church would go under. If I didn't give, that church would fail. Even pastors do this, right? Pastors get it stuck in their head. Well, if I wasn't the pastor of that church, it would die. If I leave that church, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a failure. They'll, they'll go under. I know this because I hang out with pastors. So I know this. sometimes this enters their, their mindset. There's no way that church would survive. I started that ministry, and we could go on and on and on. My mom or my dad, they were a founding this or that. The church belongs to Jesus. Jesus owns the church, and the price that Jesus paid for the church is more than you or I could ever pay for the church. And we have this awesome privilege. This is what's so great about the church, folks. We have this awesome privilege of being allowed to serve in the church for the purpose of his kingdom. How wonderful is that? Secondly, I want us to notice the church is built on the right understanding of Christ. The church is built on the right understanding of Christ. Peter, from direct revelation from God the Father, 
correctly proclaims to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Christ means that Jesus is the Messiah or he's the anointed one that was prophesied about in over 300 Old Testament prophecies. So, for example, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 52 predict the Messiah's suffering on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. Or Psalm chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7 let us, uh, tell us that he will be the future ruler over all the kingdoms on earth. Or Psalm 110 reveals him as both David's son and David's Lord. In the book of Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10, the Lord proclaims, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and and uh, pleas for mercy so that when they look on me on him who they have pierced they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one be weeps over a firstborn in this one verse we have the deity of Jesus the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the future coming and glory of Jesus which will result in the widespread conversion of Jewish people. There are dozens of astounding prophecies that Jesus either has fulfilled or yet will be fulfilled by him. And so as Peter's announcement that Jesus is the son of the living God may have been a way of saying that Jesus is the Messiah, but it also reveals that Jesus is the eternal second person of the Trinity. The only way that David's son could uh, also be at the same time David's Lord is that he's God. When Jesus walked on the water and he stilled the storm, the disciples, what did they do? Afterwards, they said that they worshipped him. Do you remember what they said? They said to Jesus, truly, you are the son of God. And what is vital is that Jesus didn't rebuke them for worshipping him. He allowed it because he alone is worthy of worship. Jesus accepted their worship as he always has done because he is God in the human flesh. However, these verses are not without controversy as, as you may know, uh, this passage of scripture here in Matthew 16. Here are some questions that get raised. Who or what is the rock that Jesus says he's gonna build upon? What are the gates of hell? In this passage of scripture and what exactly does Jesus mean when he says the keys of the kingdom and binding and loosing when he talks about that in Matthew 16 I want to try to answer some of those questions for us because I believe it's vital for us to get a grip on this passage there are three main interpretations when it comes to to Jesus's words about Peter and uh, these come from James Boyce in his commentary on Matthew Peter is the rock this is the first view which is the Roman Catholic Church that's how they view it. Peter is the rock. It views Peter as the first pope. His claim is that, the claim is that uh, he's in this direct line. Every pope since Peter is in this direct line of succession to uh, Peter. And even some Protestant scholars identify Peter as the rock in the, in the sense that he was the first to make the confession and along with other apostles and prophets became the foundation of the church. These Protestant scholars are quick to clarify that there is no mention here of Peter having some sort of supreme authority over his successors. But Roman Catholicism says Peter is the first pope, and that's what this passage is about. There's a second view that says Peter's confession is the rock. This is the main view among most Protestant scholars, but it's also a view that's held by uh, many early Catholic fathers. Chrysostom, for example, is one who said, he did not say upon Peter, for it was upon the man, for it was not upon the man, but upon his faith. 
That's where I tend to lean that it's on the confession that is referred to as the rock. There is a third view that is similar, um, and that is Christ is the rock. These uh, scholars hold that Jesus was making a pun on Peter's name, which means rock or stone, and the noun in which Jesus used for rock can mean bedrock or foundation rock in favor of Jesus being the rock. In Matthew 7, 25, Jesus alluded to himself as a stone which a builder rejected, which became the chief cornerstone. We just kind of sing about that. Also, there is nothing in the New Testament or from Peter ever indicating that he was some supreme apostle or that he is even the stone in which the church was to be built and is built. However, Peter does say that Jesus is the living stone to whom we are to come and be built up as a spiritual house for the Lord. All of this means is that this, this passage is vitally important to the church because the church is to preserve and proclaim sound doctrine about the person of Jesus Christ. The cults and even liberal Protestant churches today deny the deity of Jesus. A savior that's not quite God is no God at all. There is no salvation for those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean by, by giving Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven when he says that? With authority to both bind and to loose. Well, uh, there's a lot there, but uh, I'm not going to get into all the nitty-gritty details of that and, and weigh you down with that. But what I, what I want us to see is that the church boldly proclaims God's only way of salvation. The church boldly proclaims God's only way of salvation. The Roman Catholic Church interprets that to mean that Peter and his successors and all the popes and priests under them have the authority to forgive and to retain people's sins. So, so what they say is, is that whole binding and loosing argument is that, that uh, uh, the Pope, Peter and the popes that follow can forgive sin. That's why you would go into confession, make your confession because they can forgive your sin. There's a problem. Because only God can see what's in a man's heart. So no pope or priest can pronounce with any authority that someone is forgiven or not forgiven. If you come and confess your sin to me, I can't pronounce you forgiven. So there's no point in you coming and confessing your sin to me. I probably don't want to hear it. So, I mean, if you want to share something with me, feel free to do so. But, but you know, I don't need to get into the nitty-gritty details of all your sin because I can't do anything to pronounce you forgiven or not forgiven. That's God's job. What Jesus meant was that Peter, who is representing the apostles, had the authority to proclaim forgiveness of sins to all who repent and believe in Jesus, or judgment to those who refuse to believe. In fact, that's exactly what Peter does on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, also with the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and with the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. We also have the apostolic testimony to God's way of salvation found in the New Testament. So as members of the church, it is our duty. The church boldly proclaims 
God's only way of salvation. That's what Jesus is referencing. That it's our job to proclaim that Jesus is God's only way to salvation. We've been entrusted this critical message that the world needs to hear. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but they will have eternal life as God's free gift. But those who do not believe are condemned. Fourthly, I want us to see this, that Jesus is coming back for his church. Now you might be wondering, where does that come from in these verses? Well, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What does that mean? Some have argued that because gates are not aggressive, they symbolize death and therefore not even the power of death can stop the church of Jesus's uh, from final church of Jesus Christ from final victory. And that sounds great, but it fails to recognize that it was at the city gates where the governments would transact official business in the ancient world. And so it was this figure of speech that was used uh, for government authority, kind of like when, when we say, well, the White House said, or something like that. What, what we mean is that uh, the governing authorities have declared something like an executive order or something like that, like they've declared this. Furthermore, stop and think for a moment about gates. Are gates offensive or are they defensive? They're defensive, right? They're, they're meant to keep people out. I would believe that Jesus is making clear to us that all the power of hell cannot and will not stop his church and their triumphant march over the powers of darkness. Yeah, we can look at the church and we can see all these shortcomings and all the failures and all the weaknesses and all of the problems, but in the end, the church will reign in glory with Jesus Christ. Evil rulers have sought to destroy the church through vast persecution, but have they destroyed the church? No. Communism tried to eradicate Christianity, but did it? No. Islam spread over North Africa and effectively wiped out the church for centuries. Hinduism dominates in India. Buddhism is a prevalent religion in Southeast Asia. And yet Jesus prophesied and the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Dear Christian, listen very closely to me. This present evil and wicked world will one day crumble and perish under the almighty judgment of our sovereign God. And then the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Revelation 1.15. Jesus is coming back for his church. And the church, no matter what, will prevail. The church is essential because Christ has promised to build it, and it will not fail. And when we are committed to the church, we are committed to the only cause that will triumph in the end. Nothing else will. Everything else you invest your life in will one day be gone. Church is forever. Second point, 
The church is essential because Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. I love Ephesians 5.25. I only wish I lived it out more in my life, but it always serves to remind me that I am to love my wife. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul goes on to say in verses 28 through 30, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. The church is the bride of Christ, which he loves. The church is the body of Christ, in which he nourishes and cares for and cherishes. Husbands, uh, suppose that you invited me over to your house one day, and I came over, and, and the entire time I was at your house, I just sat there and spoke badly about your wife. The whole time. I mistreated her. I was a jerk to her. I was snotty to her. I was mean. I was rude. What would you think? Some of you probably punched me in the face, but um, you wouldn't think too good of it. Do you understand that the church is the bride of Christ? How often are we guilty of mistreating the bride of Christ? Run around talking about her, gossiping about her. Well, that there, that church, ooh, I used to be a member of that church, and oh man, they got all kinds of problems. They're terrible, and this, that, and the other. We spend all our time running down the church. If Christ loved the church enough to die for the church, then I'm to love the, I'm to love the church as well. If I say I love Christ, I have no choice. I love what John Calvin says. Separation from the church is the denial of God in Christ. Then in reference to Ephesians 5, he writes this, Nor can any more atrocious crime be conceived than for us by sacrilegious disloyalty to violate the marriage that the only begotten Son of God designed to contract with us. He's saying that when, when, when you speak bad about the bride of Christ, you are violating the marriage. Wow. That's powerful. How often are we guilty of that? Committing spiritual adultery in sins. It's actually pretty easy to love the church, at least in theory, am I right? That's why we have that little jingle. You've probably heard it. To dwell above with the saints we love. Oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know. That's another story. However, if the church is Christ's bride, she's one flesh with him. When we say we love Christ, we must love the church. We must be committed to the local church and learn that we can work through our differences and our offenses in a way that is biblical and exalts the body of Christ. The truth of the matter is that we're called to love the saints. We know. Lastly, point number three. The church is essential because Christ reveals his glory through it. Let me read to you Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 11. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul gives us so much information here. I can only touch on, on what he's saying briefly. The church is the means by which God accomplishes his eternal purposes for creation to exalt Christ above all else. The church is his temple where he dwells and wants his glory to be manifested. There are at least two ways that the church reveals Christ's glory to the lost and to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. First, Christ's glory is revealed through the church when we proclaim and uphold God's word. Christ's glory is revealed through the church when we proclaim and uphold God's word. If you listened last week, you know that I said the church is this pillar in the support of the truth. God's word is very clear that there is indeed clearly defined body of spiritual moral truth, which also means that there is such a thing as spiritual and moral falsehood and error. We read in God's word that Satan is the father of lies and that he was a liar from the beginning. But Jesus spoke only the truth and proclaimed only the truth. And he said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And when he prayed for his disciples in John chapter 17, verse 17, he prayed that they would be sanctified in the truth and that God's word is truth. Listen, we are God's church. We are charged with upholding and proclaiming God's truth as revealed in God's word, especially with regard to the gospel of God's moral standards. And uh, we're to proclaim this to a lost and dying world. The gospel is under attack from many different areas all different angles because everything hinges on whether or not a person believes in the true gospel the gospel is not about how you can have your best life now that's not what the gospel is about it's not about how every day can be a friday it's not about how you can uh, be happy and have a better marriage or how to raise your kids better, or how you can have joyful kids, or this, that, or the other. Yes, some of these things can certainly result from the gospel, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is about sinners being reconciled to a holy God through faith in a crucified Savior. But let me be clear. Scripture teaches us that believing the gospel always results in holy living. That's not legalism, that's just the Bible. And we have a problem. We have a problem in America. Because people that say that they believe the gospel do not practice holy living. In fact, 60% of practicing Christians believe there is no such thing as an absolute moral truth. 60%. We have a problem with at least 36% of all evangelical Protestants believe that homosexuality should be accepted by a society. 36%. You see, you understand fact 
that we are to reveal Christ's glory as a church. And that happens when we proclaim and uphold God's word as truth. Lastly, I want to share with you this morning. Christ's glory is revealed through the church when we grow in Christ-like character. Christ's glory is revealed through the church when we grow in Christ-like character. After Paul tells us that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, he continues on in Ephesians 5, 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of his word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. If the church is going to reveal Christ to a lost world around us, then we have to be growing in Christ-like character, which is summed up by the fruit of the Spirit, both in our character and in our relationships. Where does this come from? Where do we develop this? Well, the first place is in our homes. Our homes should be permeated with love and the grace of Christ. Husbands are commanded and called upon to sacrificially love their wives. Wives are commanded and called upon to respect and love their husbands. Parents should love their children and do all they can to bring them up to know Jesus Christ. The second place this, this character is developed is in the church. In the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. You see, Christ's glory is revealed in this church when we grow in our Christ-like character and we love one another above all things. We have this love for each other. Just as Christ loved us, we're to love each other. And this is how the world knows that we are his disciples, that if we have this love for one another. The outside world should be able to peer inside of the church of Jesus Christ and see us loving one another, see us growing in this Christ-like character as we love each other. And God's glory is then revealed through us. So why do we need the church? We need the church because it's essential. Christ promised to build it. Christ loved it and gave himself for it. Christ reveals his glory through it to a lost world. Several years ago, Apple Computer fallen on some pretty hard times. They were looking for a solution. They had a young chairman by the name of Steve Jobs who traveled to New York in an attempt to convince PepsiCo's John Scully to move west and run the struggling computer company. As Jobs sat in Scully's penthouse office, which overlooked the Manhattan skyline, Scully began to decline his offer. He said that Apple would have to offer him an astronomical salary and a benefits package for him to even consider it. Jobs was, was stunned. He took a gulp and he agreed. But only if Scully would move to California. However, Scully would only commit to being a consultant from New York. 
Jobs was frustrated, so he confronted Scully, and this is what he said. Do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water, or do you want to change the world? And that statement by Jobs knocked the wind out of Scully. He had never thought of it that way. He accepted the offer. He moved west, and I'll tell you the rest of the story, but I'll leave it up to you to, to look up. I'll just say things didn't necessarily end the greatest. But that statement, do you want to sell sugared water or do you want to change the world? My point in telling you this is that Jobs would not allow Scully to be a part of Apple unless Apple was the center of his life. There are many Christians who think that they can be a Christian, but the church doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be the center of their life. They can do what they want. They can live however they want. Because they're so focused on themselves to understand that the church is essential. Our purpose is far greater than making and marketing computers and iPhones and iPads. The church is at the center of God's eternal plan for this world. And I would urge you to commit yourself to the church, to help the church become all that God wants the church to be. Furthermore, unless you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then you really can't love what Jesus loves. And the church will never be at the center of your life. If you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, I invite you to do so today. You can do that and become a part of God's family. You can do that by praying something like this, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's Son, that you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I turn from my sin. I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not magic. It's your trust in Christ that saves you. That prayer is this expression of your trust. If you said that prayer or something like it, then I would invite you to, to follow up. You can either come forward or you can, uh, if you're online, you can text the word FAITH to 309-328-3488 and, and fill out a, a card that would come to you so we, we can follow up with you. You can even do that from your pew if you'd want to. Dear Christian, I ask you, why do we need the church? Because it's essential. Is it essential to you? Is the church essential to you? You should literally, as a follower of Christ, feel like you cannot live apart from the church. And if you don't have that feeling, then something's wrong. Father, thank you for this word. It speaks truth. God, I would pray that you would take what was said here this morning and that you'd penetrate hearts and lives. Lord, there's people listening online. There's people here in our building. There's people that, that may listen to this tomorrow or next week, next year. Who knows? But I know that your message and your word always accomplishes what you want it to accomplish. And so, Father, I pray for those that 
that perhaps hear this message that the church is not essential to them. Oh God, would you reveal in their heart why that's the case? Would you show them any bitterness or, or hard feelings that they maybe have towards the church? Would you reveal to them any sinfulness in their heart that's, that's keeping the church from being essential? Oh Lord, may the church be essential to us. May we understand that, that it's essential to you, that it's the bride of Christ. Oh Lord, may we love the church as Christ loves the church. May we be committed to it. May we understand that that's your, your call to us. May we live that out. And so Lord, I pray that however you've spoken to us this morning, that we would respond to that. Whether it's through a text message or walking an aisle or hanging out after the service or a phone call later, however it is that that we are being led to respond this morning to your word. God, I pray that we would respond. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we sing, you'd be willing to come and respond.